This is Christy Drutman, and you are listening to Brown Girl Green, where I interview environmental leaders and advocates about workplace member diversity and inclusion and creative solutions to the climate crisis. I am working to change the image of what it means to be an environmentalist in the 21st century. To start off today's show, I would like to acknowledge that I'm recording this podcast on Ohlone land, otherwise known as the Bay Area. This is your daily dose reminder that we are all living on stolen indigenous land and that we must acknowledge it as often as we possibly can if we are given the platform to do so, like I am today. Now, let's begin. If you want to skip the fluff of my intro talking about my reflections on the coronavirus and how I'm getting through it, you can skip ahead to the 955 mark, I believe it is, where I start my interview with this week's guest talking about climate change and disability. I think you'll love the interview, but if you want to stick around and get to know me more and how I feel about the coronavirus, then stay right here. What's up, everyone? I hope you are staying safe and healthy and well out there. And if you are sneezing and coughing, you better get yourself a tissue or an elbow and you better get that stuff away from your family and friends right away. But anyways, I'm coming live and in charge from my living room right now. And I got to say, it's actually been kind of fun. I've exercised more than I ever did with my gym membership, which is like, why do I even have a gym membership? I am talking to birds out my window. My housemates are questioning my sanity, but that's okay. And I am honestly taking the time to go on some of my state-sanctioned nature walks when I am not being forced to shelter in place like we all are across the country right now. So the craziest thing about this whole corona thing is is that some of you may know this, but I'm sure a majority don't. I grew up in a hometown called Corona. And I gotta say, after growing up there as a kid, and now that I'm an adult, I see a lot of similarities between that town and this virus. First of all, when you go to Corona, you don't have much to do anyways. You practically are being begged to stay inside because that's the only entertainment you're going to find. Purposely choose to stay six feet away from them at all times. So I got to say, when I'm thinking about the coronavirus, besides it having the same name as the town that I grew up in, it is something that became so unexpected. I came back from my trip from Asia at the end of January I was flying from the Philippines. I saw the little Lolas and Lolas wearing the face mask. And I was like, okay, this is chill. It's kind of scary, but it's not really impacting me in my everyday life. And yeah, when I came back, like at the beginning of February, I think I, along with everyone else, didn't really think that this was going to be as big of a deal as it is now. Like mid-February, we were talking about The Bachelor ending and the drama about that. And a month later, we see me and my housemate arguing over how to sterilize our silverware and Googling if we could die from bleach poisoning from the amount of things we were wiping down and sanitizing 50 hours a day. The most ridiculous part of all of this is that the U.S. government could have done something about this months ago when people in China in Wuhan were raising the alarm on the coronavirus But it wasn't until white ethnics, in this case, the Italians, finally said something that the other people in our government actually took action on it and took it seriously. But instead, now they're calling it the Chinese virus and throwing all this like super racist, anti-Asian stuff out when in fact they're just using that as a scapegoat to save their own butts from admitting that they screwed up royally. So as we can see, the world not a great place to be in right now, especially if you're someone who has disabilities. I wanted to make this week's episode about climate change and disability because I believe that especially during times of crisis like the coronavirus, people with disabilities and compromised immune systems are on the front lines to be impacted the worst by such crises. A guest on today's show, Alex Guinness, was featured in a Disability World article entitled Coronavirus Pandemic, COVID-19 Updates and Statistics, published at the end of January. 
Alex worries if healthcare providers see folks with disabilities as individuals with inherently compromised immune systems, people with disabilities will be the last in line, whereas people seen as more likely to survive will get treated first. And I think that this is a really important topic to bring up because we have to think about who is at the front lines when there are limited amounts of ventilators, masks, gloves, and other medical tools and equipment, as well as limited human care. When we have hospitals overflowing, I mean, I just heard that they're like putting hospital beds in Central Park as we speak because the hospitals can't possibly uh, like support enough people, we have to think about the most vulnerable. And those are people who have disabilities. People I'm thinking about are people with intellectual disabilities like Down syndrome, dementia, or severe traumatic brain injuries. People who have compromised immune responses and or respiratory systems that are going to be exacerbated due to the virus. Or people with disabilities as a whole that I didn't just list who depend on things like active prescriptions and may not have the money or the support system to get the things they need in the time that they need to get them. And so we have to be thinking about how people with disabilities are not getting access to the resources they need in times of crisis. A perfect example of this is the story of Emily Wallace, published on ProPublica. Emily was 67 years old and the first person with Down syndrome in her community of Albany, Georgia, as well as one of the first people with disabilities in the U.S. to contract the coronavirus. After her husband died, Emily was moved to a group home where her caregiver contracted COVID-19 and thus ended up giving the virus to Emily. She was then brought to a local hospital where she died alone. Emily had a husband, a community, and at the end of the day, she ended up in a hospital with limited capacity or supplies to take care of her in the ways that she may have needed, and she ended up passing away. She is a signal for what many other people with disabilities across the world are struggling through, especially here in the U.S., as they aren't seen as having the same level of life expectancy or mental aptitude as the rest of society, so they continue to be treated as an afterthought in times of crisis. In addition to the coronavirus, we have something even bigger and more existential that we're constantly dealing with, which is the climate crisis. Climate change has and will continue to bring on so many disasters, such as forced migration, droughts, food shortages, and so forth. In a state of both disaster and the recovery afterwards, how do we group knowing who's been getting left out of the resources they need to recover? And also, how can we connect with each other without knowing our neighbors and those who are most vulnerable in our communities? And lastly, how do we make our recovery from such crises like the coronavirus and future natural disasters from climate change equitable? According to the World Health Organization, as accessibility to healthcare services decreases, the impact on people with disabilities increases. So when we're thinking about the decrease of having medical supplies and people on hand to help people with disaster recovery, people with disabilities are impacted first and foremost. The United Nations estimates that people with disabilities are two to four times more likely to face injury or death in a disaster due to inequitable access to care. Today, we will learn from two of our best teachers, Marsha Saxton and Alex Guinness. We will discuss the intersections between disability and climate change. During the conversation, we will be discussing the impact of disabilities in the climate change movement, as well as ways in which communities can navigate and activate to be allies with people with disabilities. And to think about what does it mean to live in a climate resilient world that puts people with disabilities as a top priority, not just an afterthought. So here's today's episode. I am joined here today with Marsha and Alex, and we will be talking about climate change and disability. 
So welcome to the Brown Girl Green podcast. I just wanted to allow both of you a chance to introduce yourselves and talk about some of the work that you're doing around disability and climate resilience. I'm Marcia Saxton. I am Director of Research at the World Institute on Disability. I also teach courses in disability studies at UC Berkeley. Um, Alex got me interested in the climate disability connection. I had been reading uh, like books by Naomi Klein and others and was getting scared and thinking I should get more involved and then started realizing the profound and um, hugely urgent and important connection with disability issues. So I'm delighted to be involved and we're trying to connect with folks like you who are learning together. And uh, my name is Alex Guinness. Uh, I'm a policy and research specialist here at the World Institute on Disability. Um, uh, you know, when I came out of college, I was focusing on renewable energy and uh, that made me realize how important just the system of electric grids and uh, functioning health systems and everything is for people with disabilities. And uh, I saw that endangered by climate change, just the, the, the stability of the world we live in. Um, so I began working here at the World Institute on Disability, uh, began writing and exploring how people with disabilities will be affected by climate change. And uh, over the past four years or so, you know, we've worked on producing materials, we've done a lot of presentations, and uh, now we're really looking forward to doing some more concrete policy development also, um, uh, and see a lot of good opportunities on the horizon there. I feel that disability is not a topic that is typically being discussed in mainstream climate change discourse. How is the language around disability changing in the United States and why do you believe the climate change movement needs to be on top of how the language around disability is evolving? Mm -hmm. Well, first I wanna say that the issue is largely invisible first. And when we started exploring these issues, we were getting a lot of blank stares. People would say, what does disability have to do with climate? And it only takes one sentence to explain that in any kind of environmentally compromised situation like natural disasters, refugee camps, migration circumstances, the people with disabilities will die first and sometimes fast. And we're not blaming those circumstances per se, but there's a lack of planning and awareness that people with disabilities have really specific needs that need to be addressed and planned for so that these circumstances are not so directly devastating to this population. Marsha is certainly, I think, more versed on this than I am, but just the history of exclusion of people with disabilities that so much of what we face in in, well, in the face of climate change is based off of centuries of marginalization of people with disabilities being either locked away, pushed out of sight, not given the services that they need, or simply uh, as people with disabilities have been increasingly fighting for rights, kind of homogenized, which is an issue that we face is that when people think disability rights, they think providing wheelchairs to so spinal cord injuries, when really it's so much more complex than that. And when you're, you know, you asked about the evolution of the language, is that people with disabilities, in terms of climate change, climate literature, have been recognized, but simply as a word in the large list of vulnerable populations. Special people with special needs. Yeah, uh, things like that. Yeah, it's a uh, you know uh, when you look at. Uh, International Panel on Climate Change, it simply, it says things like certain populations will be more vulnerable to the effects of climate change, such as women, children, the elderly, the disabled, you know, people of color and ethnic and racial minorities. And that's it. And it's one word, whereas disability is so intersectional and complex that uh, uh, we need to take a broader and, you know, deeper scope looking at this. Yeah, people with mobility impairments, the wheelchair users do have specific needs in relation to transportation and evacuation and so on. And then there's people with communication needs, people who are deaf or hard of hearing, who need to have messaging and information given in an accessible format. And then people with developmental disabilities who need to have assistance um, from family members and so on to understand what's next. People with chronic illness who may have uh, medication needs and so on. 
And we, as we've gotten to know the providers, the um, first responders, the policymakers, we've had to educate them about the really specific categories, not only the disability categories, but how they intersect with all the other populations. And we need to keep reminding people that nobody is just one thing. Everybody has all the characteristics that need to be thought about together. Definitely. What do you believe that your organization has felt as like the need to include climate change in its conversations? Like, like how have you been able to bridge the gap between like climate resilience and disability? Because I mean, you all presented it as pretty obvious, but maybe some people don't really understand how you can create the language that combines those two things. So how have you all worked to create new definitions of climate resilience and who gets to be included in that equation? Yeah, one of, one of the first barriers I just wanna mention is that people with disabilities as a constituency are still struggling with such basic needs for housing, for appropriate healthcare, for personal assistance in the home and in the workplace. And so some of the other issues that I've worked on, like example, abuse and violence prevention and responding to abuse is that the disability community is, is struggling to even recognize that abuse and violence is a huge issue for this community. So I had a model in advance, that example of, you know, trying to get the disability community to wake up, which is really hard, a hard message because we're struggling so much with just the basics, with just the passage, I mean, with the enforcement of the Americans with Disabilities Act. So um, it's adding this huge, hard, scary agenda item to already overwhelmed organizations and individuals and families. Ouch. Um, yeah, certainly. And I think that there's a couple sides of that, which, and why we're really trying to be a champion of this, is that there are, in, addi in addition to people with disabilities simply you know, trying to survive, there are a lot of organizations that are doing incredible work fighting for employment rights, fighting for healthcare, fighting for uh, increased physical, programmatic, social access, inclusion. Uh, this was something that we saw wasn't being addressed as much. And actually, uh, I think we're lucky in a way because uh, we're, we're coming into this at a very important time, both from the climate resilience and the disability rights side of it. When I started writing all of four years ago, you know, there were a few dozen publications, if that, a couple dozen publications that I could find on the entire internet calling around everywhere, you know, look, that even looked at climate change and disability. And so much of it looked at natural disasters. And what we've seen, and cities, if they were looking at climate resilience at all, were just talking about disaster planning. What we're seeing is that we have First of all, the disability community within disaster readiness with what's happened in the past several years of hurricanes Harvey and Irma, of the forest fires out here in California, building from Hurricane Sandy, et cetera. And way uh, before to Katrina. Yeah, that uh, there's a big push for certainly disaster readiness and response, which is a big part of what we want to work toward with climate resilience. And I think also provides a stepping stone where we say, look how this important this is. This is a very visual, kind of visceral, important connection where you can see people with disabilities being left behind. So let's include them as we're doing disaster prep. And now that cities are doing more disaster prep and including disability, they're also doing climate resilience and we need to expand to the more complex parts of that. Um, things such as here in the Bay Area, we have the Adapting to Rising Tides program which is trying to figure out what will the housing and transportation and social needs be as sea level rise expands in this 9 million person, you know, really dense kind of urban suburban area. And so many people with disabilities have really unique needs around that, that we're trying to make it more comprehensive. Definitely. And I think like, yeah, I mean, you kind of touched on it. Like people with disabilities are pretty much pushed aside in most almost every category in like society. And so it's like to place climate resilience on top of all of that is just so much added pressure. And it's like, why is it being placed on the individuals to have to like 
come up with a resilience plan for themselves when like these institutions should be addressing that. So that's, that's terrible. That sucks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Even though that's obvious. To um, jump off your point, I mean, there are things that individual families need to do to think about this. And there are so many things that individuals can't do, like address transportation issues. So we, we want to alert the disability community not only to protect themselves and their families, their family members with disabilities, but also see themselves as activists in this community and join to organize around disability community needs because that's the only way it's gonna work. I think it's interesting to discuss this concept of activism and bringing people into a larger movement to realize that they have the agency for themselves to be resilient in the face of climate change. But I think for a lot of people, maybe even people in the disabled community, they might have felt like a lot of the rhetoric surrounding like the climate change movement, as you just mentioned, like there was barely any anything pretty much written about climate change and disability until very recently. People in the disability community might feel like isolated or alienated from the broader environmental movement. Have you all witnessed or experienced or like have any insights on how you feel like the climate movement in some ways might promote like an ableist discourse? And what are some things that you think need to change about that? I both have mobility impairments. We're, we're not in shape to, to leap in a boat if there's a flood or run from a fire. And there is a, an attitude that I think is completely unconscious that we need to be ready to do those kinds of things. And, it, you know, it's, again, I, want, I don't want to blame people for their lack of awareness because it doesn't work well. We don't want to shame and scold people. We need to start from a place of, okay, we're educating ourselves and each other now. Um, you have some good examples from the environmentalist or the survivalist. Yep. Well, there's, actually, if I can take a step back and, and refer to, you know, we have this New Earth Disability, the name of the project that I started, and we have our newsletter. And if you can imagine, you know, we talk about the, the medical and the social model of disability, which really plays into environmentalism, uh, which is the medical model is there's something wrong with our bodies. And the world is built as it should be, you know, able-bodied people go about it. And the fact that we have a disability is because we, you know, can't easily go upstairs or we, uh, you know, can't see the crosswalk or light or anything along those lines. Whereas the social model is that there's a broad range of abilities, disabilities, and related interactions with the world. And the actual disabling interaction with society is the fact that there isn't accommodations or physical or programmatic or social access that's provided. And I always say, it's not that I can't walk upstairs, it's that there isn't a ramp or an elevator. So um, we actually locate disability, the concept of disability in the environment, not in our individual bodies, but in the interaction with our unique, interesting bodies and the lack of accommodation, as well as the lack of awareness for the need for accommodation. So, and it's a confusing thing. Most of us are so used to the medical model locating disability. I mean, it just seems so common sense that if you, you know, want a job in a factory and there's two flights of stairs, well, the problem is your legs. No, the problem is the lack of access to the job. And building off of that, so there's, there's two parts of the environmental and, you know, medical social model interaction. Uh, number one, and pardon my kind of going conceptual here is that uh, in terms of the environmental movement has focused on, I think, two things that really build off of and reinforce that almost ableist medical model. The first one is that humanity has made Earth ill through industrialization. Mm. And this pristine, able-bodied, medically beautiful Earth then acquired a disability through carbon emissions and, you know, uh, carcinogenic byproducts of, of our industrial society. Right. Yeah, so that's one thing. And response is so much, uh, we need to take environmental steps to heal the earth. We need to find medical cures for industrialization. 
uh, if the earth is a living being. So that's number one is I think that, and there isn't so much where there should be. You know, I, I was just mentioning in our little pre-chat that we just passed 410 parts per million in the atmosphere and there's still organizations called 350.org and it's like, yeah, good luck. You know, um, it's not you go and try it, but it's not going to happen. It's that, you know, this, so much of this is already in the pipeline. And as people with disabilities have seen, you know, especially for, I'll, I'll give myself as an example of spinal cord injury is some, I'd say that the majority of spinal cord injury research is stem cells and curing spinal cord injury as opposed to adaptive technology and best ways to live independently given somebody's existing disability. That the environmental movement needs to switch to focus on adaptation. And on that end, adaptation needs to be inclusive of disability because the environmental concept that everybody can go live in a forest commune with uh, you know, local organic farming uh, first of all is, I, I'm, I'm sure you've talked about this, but there's so many socioeconomic uh, aspects of that, of like, yeah, okay, rich white folks, you go ahead and you live in your communes, uh, but you know that's not the reality for a huge amount of people, and especially for people with disabilities that rely on this social infrastructure, this social and medical infrastructure for independence and quality of life, that if we get rid of the industrial, social industrial medical system as we have it, you're dooming these people to suffering and death. So there needs to be an understanding of that, that there's a group that simply, if we try to get rid of the disease that is industrialization for, you know, the previously pristine earth, that that doesn't work for everybody. And, you know, it's a tricky conundrum to be in. It really is. So. We need to mention, it's not our slogan, but it's important to point out that the rates of disability will increase with climate change impact because it devastates communities and people are going to get sick and are going to get disabled. And so it's not, it's not an issue that can be continually framed as that marginalized population with all those burdensome needs. It's going to be a lot of folks. Ooh, no, that was great. I think it's really important that you brought up that the mainstream rhetoric itself is really isolating people and trying to stigmatize just the way people are existing in the world and isn't really cognizant of like, okay, we don't live in this like world Earth Day in the mid 20th century where things still felt manageable and that we still had control over things and we could just police everything whether it was our bodies or the planet there's a lot of hubris there so it's like this idea that maybe applying this new lens around disability and resilience and adaptation allows people to more so think okay things are not pretty it's a really ugly puzzle let's accept that we really aren't perfect and that we don't actually have control over this as much as we thought we did and that we need to like see humanity and other people and see the flaws that we have in ourselves. So I think that's like super great that you brought all that up. That's gold. You're welcome. One last little thought there is, you know, people with disabilities have lived with the social response to stress as the triage mentality for a very long period of time, which is the triage framework is that if you have multiple people and they each have varying levels of financial and social and infrastructural need that if you have limited needs, you prioritize saving the people that need the least amount of help first. And we're in a tricky place because we're facing social stress. We're facing social and resource and economic and environmental stress. And this past triage mentality, which really is rooted in conventional disaster response. I'm so sorry. There's three people. One person can walk down the stairs in this building on fire. One person has crutches and one person has a wheelchair. And we have one person to assist that can put an arm around the person with crutches, but we don't have two people that can carry the person in a wheelchair. And we're really sorry that we have to abandon you. We can save two people. Or there's five people and you have two people that can help and you have to choose who to leave behind. 
and people with disabilities have so frequently been left in that position of being last in the line in times of stress. Triage is a hard concept to argue with because the intent is to save the most people. And we want to help people get out of that model of thinking that the disabled people are the least worthy. You know, we can joke about, you know, if the, if the airplane crashes and, and the disabled person is near the, uh, the exit door, that person has had the most experience being disabled. And that's funny, ha, ha, ha. But we need to recognize that people with disabilities do have skills to offer in a, in a compromised situation. We have resiliency training by virtue of being disabled people. We can think, well, sometimes better than people who are panicked around compromised needs. So we want to break that medical model notion that the disabled people are only there to get helped if we can help them. I remember I, I flew out of my wheelchair and broke my leg and I'm lucky that I don't have sensation oh. because, but I was just like very calmly walking the freaked out paramedics through how to unstrap my leg from my wheelchair before they put me on the stretcher. This is a very odd uh, uh, tangent away from what Marsha was saying, but I mean, in, in I think a lot of our community has figured out how to deal with panicked time of stress and limited resources and being creative. And that's going to be a very valuable skill uh, as we keep moving forward. So I want to take this time before we head into our last portion of the episode to take a break and talk about a current event that just happened in the world related to the topic of this week's episode. Marcy Roth, Executive Director and CEO at the World Institute on Disability, published an open letter to Vice President Mike Pence asking him directly to address the needs of people with disabilities during COVID-19. I wanted to bring up this piece because I feel that when we're thinking about climate change and we're thinking about the coronavirus and people with disabilities, we have to think about people in power. And we have to be thinking about how people in power are not thinking about people with disabilities. And if we're not thinking about people with disabilities, we're not thinking about the most vulnerable when it comes to the crises of our time. So here are three questions that really stood out to me that Marcy brought up. The first question asks, what are your plans to address providing services to persons with disabilities living in their own home with daily in-home services and supports should personal assistant providers become infected or decide to not come to work? We cannot emphasize enough the seriousness of this concern. The next question. What are your plans to address staffing shortages of social or health service agencies providing services to persons with disabilities should staff become infected or decide to not come to work? Another important concern. And the last question, what are your plans to communicate emergency information to people who are blind or deaf or who otherwise need individualized types of communications? So I wanted to share these three questions with you because I believe that they frame our conversation well of thinking about the lack of access that people with disabilities have in times of crisis. I hope you can take the time to reflect on these statements when we return to the last portion of the episode. The last part of my interview with Marsha and Alex focuses on action steps for people who want to serve and be an ally to folks with disabilities. And I hope these questions and the rest of the episode set the tone for you to take further action. So now let's get back to the episode. Do you have any recommendations for any resources people could read up on or maybe some leaders that inspire you that are at the forefront of this discussion? I mean, obviously you two are kind of at the forefront of this discussion around the U.S., but I just wanted to know if there's any other colleagues or folks that you think are really trying to change this conversation. I'm going to talk about part life. Yeah, so, uh, so there's a couple. First of all, you know, our website at the World Institute on Disability. So wid.org slash NED. So World Institute on Disability, New Earth Disability. Also uh, wid.org slash climate. 
will go there as well. We still have a lot uh, of very worthwhile things to read up on. There are some great 15-page PDF overviews of the issue as is. There's a 75-page literature review. People really have researched this. So when if, if folks want to get into the weeds and learn more, that's available online, and we're trying to provide a centralized resource. Also, in terms of direct disaster response, Portlight strategies, and also the Partnership for Inclusive Disaster Strategies, one's kind of a nonprofit, the other's a coalition. They are really working incredibly hard on uh, educating the public, um, educating policymakers about inclusive disaster response, and then also providing help on the ground. Uh, they did that a lot in Puerto Rico with Irma and things like that. The FEMA website has some brochures you can download. It, it, what's interesting about it is there's one brochure that really struck me as a, sort of an individualist approach. It's important to look at, but there's a list of 100 things you can do to, prote- to prepare for any possible disaster. And you, know, you get your meds in order and you have batteries and you have um, your backpack that you grab if you need to run out of the house. And those, okay, good. And I have that backpack and... I'm trying to think of that, but I think one of the most important suggestions is know your neighbors. And there are friends of mine and my neighborhood is starting to organize ourselves around the potential need for connection and support with each other. So that's one thing I really recommend from that list that you start with. And then we can help each other gather the material resources that we need to think about, think ahead. When the disability community learns the basis of climate change, a lot of it is intuitive as to what it means to us. I think when the climate change disability learns the social experience of people with disabilities and just tries to, in their head, connect that to what they know about climate change and climate justice, then a lot of the connections just build right off the bat. So I know that you and your listeners, and thank you everybody for joining us who's interested in this, has limited time to really focus, you know, there's so much information out there, but but just try to learn as much as you can. You know, this is a super heavy topic And we kind of talked about how heavy it was going to be before it started. But I just, you know, I wanted to know what gives you both hope. Like, what allows you to feel this passion and this drive to keep going, even though there is such a strong push for silence and for death and violence uh, around your community? What allows you to keep pushing the conversation forward? I'll say that um, Naomi Klein's book, This Changes Everything, is the slogan in my mind that this is an opportunity. And, you know, your your focus, Christy, is the intersectional issues. And this is a chance for all these disparate communities who are already intersectional, but maybe not prioritizing that focus to get with the program of connecting across the divisions and creating coalitions, working together, learning about the the cross connections that we can all benefit from. And that's a really cool and fun and exciting prospect to take advantage of ah this terrible situation, to have fun together, to connect, to learn each other's um, stories, to make friends, to do cool things together. Yes. Uh, I'm going back to being philosophical right here. You know, the, the, the earth might not survive. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I, this is a reality. Is that I think we're all I I, I joke with the people, people but, might not survive. Yeah, the people the might not survive. Be yeah, fine. Planet, yeah, it'll, it'll be cool. No, is I joke with people like you know, well, what do you do when you your day job is looking at the end of the world? And you know, I think it's a lot. It's, it's like, yeah, yeah, but it's something that so much of the climate change community deals with, and I think it's something that the disability community deals. And, you know, a little bit of cynical humor uh, is certainly something that keeps me going, but also the recognition that, you know, we might not save everybody's perfect health and quality of life for full 80 year lifespan for the indefinite future. But every moment, you know, everything exists on a spectrum and every minute moment that one extra person is a slight marginally bit happier has its own moral worth. And I think that the the more of those that we can add, then the better. And that's just kind of what every activist has to do. Definitely. With talking about the spectrum, 
like the concept of a spectrum on like how people are getting involved and where they feel like their stake is in this movement. How do you feel people who might not see themselves in the environmental movement, particularly people with disabilities who already experience all these systemic barriers, like how do you feel like they can still feel hope that this is a movement that they can see themselves a part of too when it seems like the climate movement as of now, is it really framed around prioritizing them? There's something incredibly empowering to seeing light bulbs go off in people's heads. And I think that every time that Marsha and I go and speak about this, and I've spoken in front of a crowd of you know, 150 climate justice activists at the International Transformation Resilience Coalition, I mean, this, this is a this is a, a an organization. Actually, they're great to look up, ITRC. Um, but this is an organization where people are already coming in the framework of social justice and personal resilience uh, in the face of environmental and emotional stress. And when I go and speak, there's knowing that speaking will have an impact is good, but seeing people have this look of, wow, I never thought about that before. And how many nods and snaps we get from the audience of saying, we haven't thought about this and we know that it's going to make a difference in somebody else's life. That's encouraging. That's empowering. And I think that that's one of the things that keeps us going. Yeah. I try to remember when I get discouraged and I can get really discouraged sometimes. I've worked in really hard issues around bioethics and screening out people with disabilities through genetic engineering and issues around abuse and violence. And, and I have to keep reminding myself if I put my attention on connection and on working together, then I feel better. I feel more hopeful, more energized, more enthusiastic. So that's what I want. The message, that's my message is let's work together. Let's keep connecting around these issues and not fall into the isolation that disability oppression and so many other oppressions encourage us to separate and pull back, move together. We're a gregarious species. We like to be together and it works much better. I guess I'm going to jump into one thing. The disability community fighting for disability rights, like we hang around each other a lot. Um, <laughs> and it's a lot of the same. And like, laugh. Yeah. And laugh. <laughs> but like, like me and my friends with disabilities were complaining about BART elevators and like late personal attendance all the time, you know? And I think that there's something to be said for diversifying our activism and gaining other perspectives and gaining other insights on the success and strategies of people's activism. That is, it's, it's, you know, pardon the climate pun, but it's a fresh breath of fresh air. So. I love it. And how do you think people who, you know, don't identify as having disabilities, how can they as allies uh, support the work that you all are doing? So a couple of things. First is, <laughs> you were talking about hubris earlier. <laughs> uh, I don't necessarily speak for a group that you're not a part of if you don't know what you're talking about. And, um, you know, yeah, there's the disability community. There's the phrase, nothing about us without us. So if people want to be allies, I think having conversation with the allies that they want to be with is a fantastic first step. Learn from us, learn about the issues, share information, but don't view yourself as the cheerleader for the not spoken for, uh, if that makes sense. You know, challenge your own conceptions, challenge your own prejudices. There's so much implicit or, or, or just hidden and inherent ableism that I think comes with being a part of American or even international society that it's always good to think about. So those would be a couple parts of it. At the same time, don't be afraid to raise the issue of, wait, why are we not considering people with disabilities in this climate resilience or disaster response plan? Do outreach, try to figure out how to include the disability community um, uh, in all of your work. I mean, it, it's, you know, it's allyship 101. So. There's another um, major barrier, which is that sometimes people unfamiliar with disabilities are just embarrassed to ask questions to show their lack of awareness. And, you know, you don't want to say the wrong thing. You don't want to use the wrong word. And we're the experts on our needs. You know, just to reiterate that nothing about us without us, there is a stereotype pervasive in the society that the experts know best. 
And it's so not true. People know about their own lives and, and, known, and own needs and are the best spokespersons, trainers, teachers about what needs to happen to make this work. Break that taboo, that silence, ask questions. Even if you might feel embarrassed to look silly or stupid or say the wrong thing, it's better to make connections. People with disabilities are really good teachers about our own needs. So could you all tell our guests uh, how they can reach out to you, where they can find you, where they can follow you, like your content, retweet, just like, like it up, be allies, uh, support you in the work you're doing. So our organization's Twitter is WID underscore ORG, so WID org. You know, go into the WID website. Um, my email is available. I'm alex at WID.org. Uh, Marsha is Marsha at WID.org. Um, just give out your email. I hope that's okay. That's fine. You know, I, my personal Twitter, just A Guinness, uh, so A G H E N I S. We had a new Earth Disability, so new E Disability Twitter account. That, uh, yeah, that's where we're available. And just one last question What is an example of a piece of social media or something that you've seen that you found very entertaining that has just raised your spirits recently? That is just like, Major week great. I do a cute animal video of the day on Facebook. Um, so I'm constantly, uh, so that's that. Um, if you go on Instagram, Norbert the dog is a very, very <laughs> adorable um, uh, therapy dog that has uh, some front teeth missing and his tongue. <laughs> He's like one of these little eight pounds, like uh, whoever decided to breed this out of a wolf like I don't know how the hell they did it but um yeah uh, but but yeah his tongue kind of is constantly hanging out his face and stuff. Um, yeah. and I'm like, but animals you know we uh, there's a reason that therapy dogs exist for people who you know have emotional stress like that I think animals are fantastic um and they always it's just they're pure emotion and love and there's something there uh that's beautiful this was an amazing conversation and you really made a super heavy topic digestible for our listeners and i just i'm so grateful thank you so much good luck everybody thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this episode i know that some of the topics that we covered were dark and heavy and got really real real fast And so I hope that you take the time to reflect and take care of yourselves. Um, I have some recommendations if you want to hear them. I would love for you to make some space this week to write someone who you may or may have not talked to in a long time, a nice text message or a letter to think about how to take care of yourself, to not just think about productivity, but think about how you're caring about yourself, your breath, your body, and to also think about the most vulnerable. I hope if you got anything out of this episode is to figure out if there's any way that you can help. Um, Because if you are able-bodied, if you do have the financial resources right now and the time and the energy to try to support the most vulnerable, I think that this is definitely the time to reflect on how you could take action to do that, especially for folks with disabilities in your community. So here are some organizations and resources to help you engage with folks who are suffering through um, COVID-19, specifically folks uh, with disabilities. So some organizations I wanted to mention are Meals on Wheels, local food banks, the CDC Foundation, the Center for Disaster Philanthropy, Disability Rights California, The COVID-19 Mutual Aid Network, they're on social media, they're really great. I've been getting a lot of info for them on how you can create a mutual aid network, which basically is like making a Google Doc of your neighborhood, figuring out who has disabilities, who's elderly, who has a compromised immune system, and figuring out like who in your neighborhood could actually help buy their groceries or their medicine, etc. So that's COVID-19 Mutual Aid Network. I also recommend... Uh, the coronavirus ASL hotline, and that's for giving information for folks who want to learn how to communicate in American Sign Language. 
There's also a new brand called One Brand, which is making clear window medical masks to support lip reading for folks with disabilities who need that. There is also a website right now called accessliving.org, and they provide a lot of services and resources for the disabled community to talk about how to support people in your life who have disabilities, or if you are someone who identifies with having a disability, they have great resources on how to cope during this very difficult time. And yeah, I'm going to list a bunch of other resources in the show notes, so please check that out. Um, but suffice to say, I just want to acknowledge the courage and the resilience of everyone out there who is dealing with the coronavirus right now, who's dealing with it in their own particular ways, from parents who are now having to homeschool their children, to people who are scared about losing their housing, who have already lost their housing, their jobs, um, and their stability. I think that everyone is trying to hold it together and take care of each other. So I hope that you all take care of yourselves and just know that I'm here for you for any silliness and laughs, and I hope that I can continue to uh, bring you joy through my show. So this is Brown Girl Green, and I hope that you can smash that young subscribe button on where you listen to podcasts, and I hope you can share this episode with your friends, your family, the person down the street who thinks that they can go to the beach and get people sick when they can't and just be well. Thanks so much.